0: We have come to what is in most people's mind their favorite chapter in the book of Philippians, in this letter. We uncover in this chapter some great doctrines and we also discover Paul's personal desire just to know Jesus and to serve Jesus with great joy. And those two things run parallel in this chapter and I think that's the point. Doctrine, good doctrine, Goes hand in hand with joy. And in that observation alone, we learn that joy seems to be very much grounded in a very large degree on what you believe and on what you trust. I mean, look how the chapter opens. Philippians 3, verse 1. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things again to you, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs. Ooh. (laughs) those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are circumcision, are the circumcision. We who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. You see, his, his foundation for joy was a good theology. It was understanding what was going on around him. True joy in life comes from really knowing right from wrong. And when I say joy, I'm talking about a delight in the presence of God, a delight in his goodness. Biblical joy comes from the Lord. It's that perpetual gladness of heart that it comes from from knowing Jesus, experiencing him, trusting him. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, joy, in other words, is the response and the reaction of the soul to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Possessing joy is therefore a choice. We choose whether to value God's presence. We choose whether to trust his promises. Joy is not found in a world that's fallen It's only found in a fellowship with God that can make our joy complete. And I think to help us understand joy, let's watch this video. I uh, I think we're working now. We have sound.
1: Being in a good mood is really great. And most languages have lots of words to describe the experience. Why don't you start it over again? Happy,
0: cheerful, joyful. We'll start it over.
1: Being in a good mood is really great, and most languages have lots of words to describe the experience, like happy, cheerful, joyful, and so on. The same goes for the languages of the Bible. In ancient biblical Hebrew, there's a variety of words, like simcha, sason, or gil. In the Greek New Testament, there's kara, euphrosune, or agaliasis. Each word has its own unique nuance, but they all basically refer to the feeling of joy and happiness. Now, what makes these biblical joy words interesting is noticing the kinds of things that bring happiness and also seeing how joy is a key theme that runs through the whole story of the Bible. Let's start with sources of joy. On page one of the Bible, God says that this world is very good. And so naturally, people find joy in beautiful and good things of life, like growing flocks or an abundant harvest on the hills. The poet of Psalm 104 says a good bottle of wine is God's gift to bring joy to people's hearts. People find joy at a wedding or in their children. There's even a Hebrew proverb that compares the joy that perfume brings to your nose with the joy a good friend brings Mm. to your heart. However, human history isn't just a joy fest. The biblical story shows how we live in a world that's been corrupted by our own selfishness. It's marked by death and loss. And this is where biblical faith offers a unique perspective on joy. It's an attitude God's people adopt not because of happy circumstances, but because of their hope in God's love and promise. So when the Israelites were suffering from slavery in Egypt, God raised up Moses to lead them into freedom. And the first thing the Israelites did was sing for joy. Even though they were in the middle of a desert, they were vulnerable, the promised land was still far away, they rejoiced anyway. Later biblical poets looked back on this story and they remembered how the Lord caused his people to leave with joy, his chosen ones with shouts of joy. This joy in the wilderness, this was a defining moment. A way of saying that the joy of God's people is not determined by their struggles, but by their future destiny. This theme appears later in Israel's story, when Israel suffered under the oppression of foreign empires. The prophet Isaiah looked for a day when God would raise up a new deliverer like Moses. That's when those redeemed by the Lord will return to Zion with glad shouts, with eternal joy crowning their heads. Happiness and joy will overtake them. And while the Israelites waited, they chose joy to anticipate their future redemption. This is why it's significant that when Jesus of Nazareth was born, it was announced as good news that brings great joy. We're told that Jesus himself rejoiced and gave thanks to God his Father when he began to announce the kingdom of God. He even taught his followers the same joy in the wilderness, saying, when people reject you or persecute you for following me, rejoice, be very glad, because your reward is great in heaven. After his death and resurrection, Jesus commissioned his followers to go out and announce the good news that he was the risen king of the world. And as they did so, the early Christian communities were known for being full of joy, even when they were persecuted. Like when the apostle Paul was sitting in a dirty Roman prison, he could say that he's chosen joy even if he gets executed. He called this the joy of faith or joy in the Lord. He believed it was the gift of God's spirit, a sign that Jesus' presence is with you, inspiring hope in the midst of hardship. And when you believe that Jesus' love has overcome death itself, joy becomes reasonable in the darkest of circumstances. Now, this doesn't mean that you ignore or suppress your sorrow. That's not healthy or necessary. Paul often expressed his grief about missing loved ones or losing friends or his own freedom. He called it being full of sorrow and yet rejoicing. As he acknowledged his pain, he also made a choice to trust Jesus that his loss wouldn't be the final word. This is very different from the trite advice to turn that frown upside down. Christian joy is a profound decision of faith and hope in the power of Jesus' own life and love. And that's what biblical joy is all about.
0: A background for us as we talk about joy this morning and and see that joy is, is more than just a happy feeling but it can be a lasting emotion that comes from our choice to trust that God will fulfill his promises and that trust changes the way we think. And so our text, the first 11 verses of of chapter three in Philippians, it's about joy, but but the roots of that joy are probably really found in the most shocking verse of these 11. The most shocking part of our passage is, I think, is verse eight. I'm struck by one word that Paul uses there in verse eight. He says, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Garbage. If you look that word up in a Greek dictionary, it means, to, 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 it, it refers to anything useless or undesirable. It, it's material that you would throw away. Usually it, it's like chick, uh, kitchen scraps. It's like garbage, manure. It can mean human waste, and a lot of preachers like to really go to that human waste thing. But I don't think you have to take it that far. I don't think Paul is saying that we must completely renounce everything or consider everything in our lives to be poop. Rubbish? Yeah. Sewer water? I don't know. I'm not so sure. But why would you use that word to describe your entire past life? Is he just being harsh? This is some kind of hyperbole, an exaggeration to get our attention. Or does he really mean it? Paul's point is, I think, that if joy is a choice to trust that God will fulfill his promises no matter what our circumstances look like, then joy is the byproduct of having some good theology so that you know where you're going. And Paul's class then was worthless in compared to the value of that. The day after we celebrated the life and the impact of Mary Jean Buttrey on us all, I was invited to, to go and, and pray as the ashes uh, were scattered at sea. So I figured if they asked to pray, I'll just share something from the scripture too in those sacred moments. And I chose the passage we're studying today, actually, why? Because I think Mary Jean lived this text. She would have been very uncomfortable as we share the details of her life, all the accomplishments of, of, of her education and career, because she knew that all of that, her vocational accomplishments paled in comparison to the value of knowing and walking with Jesus. At the end of the life, at the end of life, the only hope is found in in who God is and what he's done for us. And she knew that keenly and she lived it and she ordered that service accordingly. She would ask us today, what will you have to show for your life when you stand before the Savior? Oh, I had this great job. Did you see, I, I, I went to, I don't know. She went to Stanford, woo. I got this much money in the bank. I got a lot of friends, good reputation. I've had a successful career. I got this bag full of awards. I was department chair. I was president and CEO. But if all that stuff is all you have to show for your life You don't have very much going for you because sooner rather than later, we'll be planning your memorial service or mine. And all those things won't matter because someone else is going to have your money. Someone else is going to take your job. Your fame is going to fade. Your glory will disappear. And everything that you now own will belong to someone else. Someone else is going to be sitting in your chair right here. A hundred years from now, they'll stumble across your gravestone and they'll say, I huh, wonder who that was. There are only two things that are eternal in this world, the word of God and people. So build your life around those that will, things that will last forever. The word of God will last forever. People will last Forever. Everything else disappears. Somebody's working. And what? It's okay. I shouldn't draw attention to that, I'm sorry. You're embarrassed enough. (laughs) I hope. (laughs) Biblical joy is more than a happy feeling. That's what I want us to learn from this text this morning, that's it. It's a lasting emotion that comes from our choice to trust God. He will fulfill his promises. And therefore, we ground that joy that we have in a solid faith. Evidently, the Apostle Paul had wrestled deeply with this question. He had evaluated the entire direction of his life before he came to know Jesus on that Damascus road and afterwards. And everything that he thought was so important before he met the Savior he said it's just garbage compared to that of knowing the, and the value of knowing Christ. So I want to show you from this passage, I hope, how Paul came to that conclusion. How can we come to the same conclusion? And as we do that our, and we make sure we're believing the right things, I think we find a solid foundation for joy in life. From Paul's thinking, I think there are four questions that impact our life and our joy today. Question number one. Is this will you boast only in Jesus you're gonna boast only in the Savior the passage begins with a rather stern warning he says further my brothers and sisters rejoice in the Lord it is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again and it's a safeguard for you I've told you before rejoice 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 watch out for those dogs those evil doers those mutilators of the flesh Apparently, there's been some false teachers that have infiltrated into the church at Philippi. And Paul wanted to make sure that the congregation there knew how to handle them. How do you deal with these people? And in verse 2, he uses three rather harsh terms to describe them. He calls them dogs, not house pets, not your cute little puppy. These are wild dogs that roam the streets. They're just looking for food all the time. He calls them men who do evil. They do wrong things. And third, he calls them mutilators of the flesh. Okay? They were immoral. They were influential. They went around, and what did they do? They did circumcisions. They came to your church, and they say, you want to be a Christian? Then let's go in the back room, and we'll snip, snip, snip. That's quite the uh, user-friendly approach. You had to be circumcised, they said. They were very zealous, but they were very wrong. They had bad theology. They were active in the church, but they were evil in their influence. They said, you got to keep the Old Testament law, the law of Moses. you got to do it if you're going to be saved, if you're going to really know Jesus. And they claimed that circumcision was necessary. If God's going to accept you, you got to be circumcised. To the Apostle Paul, that's nothing less than heresy. It's bad theology. It's one thing if you decide for yourself you're going to follow the law of Moses, it's quite another thing for you to tell me that then I have to too. It's very different. And it's very bad if you say you can't even know Jesus. You can't even be saved if you don't do the law. They denied grace. They denied the whole message Paul was preaching. They were mutilating the souls of people they claimed to be helping. And Paul's answer in verse 3 is this, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, who put no confidence in the flesh. He says, we are the circumcision. What are they talking about? True believers have been circumcised of the heart through faith in Christ. We don't need anything done to us physically because we've got our spiritual heart transplant. And so we worship then in the spirit and we give glory to Jesus Christ. We put no confidence in the flesh, I'm gonna boast in Jesus and him alone. Religion without Jesus is very dangerous. And many people today are boasting about their religion to get them to heaven. They believe because they were baptized They were baptized maybe as an infant or as a child or a teenager. That's it, I'm I'm, I'm secure, I'm ready to go. They boast in religion, but that kind of religion will send you to hell. You can say your prayers five times a day. That's wonderful. You can be baptized. You can go to the Lord's Supper. You can sing in the choir. You can do whatever you want to do. But if you don't know Jesus, it doesn't do you any good. In what do you boast? What are you resting on? It has to be him and the Savior alone. You can't have a Christ plus faith. They were trusting in Christ plus baptism or Christ plus membership or Christ plus whatever. They loved to sing that old gospel song. Jesus paid almost all of it. (laughs) Not all of it because I got to do something. Don't trust in religion, it cannot save you. Don't trust in your parents' religion, it can't save you. Don't trust in your baptism, it can't save you. Don't trust in just church attendance, it can't save you. Religion is good, but, and, and so is baptism and church membership and all of those things. But where's your boast? If your heart's never been circumcised by faith in Christ, Then your boast is in all kinds of other things. You will not, Paul says, you're not going to experience biblical joy. In what do we boast? Second question, have you misplaced your confidence? Very similar. He gives then his personal life story. Here's his personal pedigree, spiritually. Verse 4, though I myself have reasons for such confidence... If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. He had the right ritual. He was circumcised. He had the right race. He was an Israelite. He had the right family, a tribe of Benjamin. He had the right religion, he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He had the right job, he was a Pharisee. He had the right zeal, he's a persecutor of the church. He had the right morality, he's keeping all the commandments. If you're not impressed with that, all that means is you're not a Jew living in the first century, which you're not. Because that's a very impressive resume for, for someone in the first century. We, used, we sometimes describe people from a high position in society as a blue blood. Well, Paul was a Jewish blue blood. He was as in as you could be in the first century. He had it all. He was, a, had, was of Jewish descent, an excellent education, high social standing. His reputation was he, he obeyed the law. What more could you want? And that's exactly the point of this text. If being religious could get you into a relationship with Jesus, can get you to heaven, then Paul had a guaranteed front row seat. In fact, he probably was sitting next to Moses. He's he's got a resume as good as it gets. He's a number one draft pick, any league, any sport. And the point is, most people in the world, they stop right there, and they don't go any further. They don't think about it. Their confidence is in what they've done. And, and well, yeah, my, re- my resume isn't quite as good as the Apostle Paul's, but you know, it's not that bad. I'm, I'm sure it's good enough to squeak in at the end. I go to church every once in a while, I try to be good. I haven't killed anybody lately. <laughs> I try to keep others and help them in need. And I belong to the, you know, just do the best you can religion. Because as long as I do the best I can, God's going to smile, shake his head at the end. Oh, come on in. It's okay. And all along the way, they don't have joy because they've placed their confidence in, in things that don't matter. Are you trusting in something that leaves out the Savior? Which brings us to the third section of this passage, the third question. Number three, what are your priorities in life? You see, as Paul considers his life Before coming to know Jesus on that Damascus road and after, he does a kind of mental accounting. And he says, okay, well, let's compare these things in a profit and loss statement. Verse 7, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage refuse, kitchen scraps, that I may gain Christ. See, on the prophet's side, there's only two words, Jesus Christ. On the lost side, he's got all these things that he used to brag about, his heritage, his education, all that stuff. Paul does not consider being Jewish or obeying the law. It's not evil, but he clearly understands that these things are worthless in comparison to knowing Christ as a source of joy, as you put your confidence in these things, they are as useless as garbage. And he is saying, it doesn't matter at all, it's rubbish to me. The only thing that matters is knowing Jesus, knowing Christ. But I have a question at this point, and and I think it's a rather big one. Why would Paul come to such What I think is a radical conclusion. Because when we read about rubbish, we assume he's talking about all the bad things we've done. For most of us, if I said, you got to get rid of the rubbish in your life, what are you thinking of? You're thinking of, okay, those angry thoughts, the bad habits, that dabbling in pornography, the immorality, the gross uh, misconduct, you know the prejudice I, I I have, the uncontrolled temper, all that bad stuff. It's wrong. I know it. That's the garbage. And so, if I said you get the garbage out of your life, how many of you would instinctively think that I'm really talking about your your your, your, your heritage or your college education or your years what singing in the choir? But that's what Paul's talking about in Philippians three. Anything that keeps you from Christ is rubbish, no matter how good it looks to you. You see, it's not that the things on his list are wrong in themselves. Most of them are morally neutral. There was nothing wrong with being circumcised. I mean, in the Old Testament, it was commanded. There's nothing wrong with being from the tribe of Benjamin. There's nothing wrong with being zealous for God Except, you know, you're killing and stoning people. That's not good. But the heritage issues were things that he couldn't change about his background. And his lifestyle choices, except for the persecuting part, weren't in and of themselves sinful. They were rubbish, though. Because he took pride in them. He was proud of them. He was confident in them. And he looked down on other people because of these things in his life, and he evaluated them in light of those things. A person can say, well, I'm a Presbyterian. My father was a Presbyterian. My grandfather was a Presbyterian. All my ancestors for 12 generations back were Presbyterians. In fact, I'm descended from John Knox on my father's side and Jonathan Edwards on my mother's side. And both of them are descended from John Calvin. To which you reply, well, that's amazing. You should be proud of that fine heritage, but don't make the mistake of thinking that your heritage is going to get you any special favors with God. That pedigree is not a solid foundation for joy. And when you depend upon it for that, you're not going to have the kind of joy that you need because you have to be saved by grace just like everybody else. And all of us come from some background or another. And there's no reason to take pride in your ethnic or your national heritage. But, and, and I think this is the point of Philippians 3 if you think that being Japanese or Indian or Portuguese or British or Italian, I don't, whatever, somehow puts you in a better position with God, you have bad theology. And if you use your national heritage to look down at other people because that makes you feel superior, you haven't understood your own sin and the depth of your need for God. And as Paul did this accounting in his life, he came to the conclusion that his advantages didn't matter to God. And actually they kind of kept him from really seeking and understanding the grace of God until he learned to count them as chicken scraps. Rubbish compared to the joy of knowing Jesus. See, the danger we face is very subtle, but it's very terrible, and it's in our hearts. Because we find ourselves feeling we deserve some status and respect because of the the stuff we've done, the hard work we've done in life. And in that, there is no joy. Question four, last three verses. Will you refocus your goals? Will you refocus your ambitions in life? Christ is my salvation but he's also my goal and my ambition because I press on to win the prize he has for his obedient servants. Verse nine, and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. And I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead, if we're going to understand how radical Paul's perspective is, he says, well, look what I have received from my relationship to Christ. Verse nine, full justification. I've got a righteousness that doesn't belong to me. That's amazing. Verse 10, I've got this continual sanctification. I'm growing. I'm being more and more separated from my my sin, and I'm getting closer to Christ. And then verse 11, "I, I also got this future glory. I'm heading to this resurrection from the dead. Verse 8 introduced this whole idea of gaining more of Christ, and it's here in this text that Paul further explains it and develops it. Knowing Christ in this text, I think, can mean being simply redeemed and in the family of God. But I think it can also refer to this deep, rich, joyful, personal nearness with Jesus. In these few well-chosen words, Paul expresses a great deal about what it is to rejoice in the Lord. His desire is to know Christ, and he longs to more deeply experience the power of the resurrection. It's exactly what he had prayed for the Ephesian believers back in Ephesians 1. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. That's what he wants them to do. He wants them to know those things and those truths and that theology. And so back in Philippians, he says, well, I want you to do two things, to know Christ and to know the power of his resurrection. We love those things, right? Those are two things we could have spent a week or two on, and maybe we should have. But we don't like the next two things that he mentions so much, do we? You should know that, he says. And then he says, and we should know that, and his participation in his sufferings, and becoming like him in his death. You wanna be like Jesus? You wanna imitate the Savior's full obedience and his full humility? Philippians 2, five through 11. It has to include suffering. Hudson Taylor once said, do we know how much fellowship with him? Do we know much of fellowship with him in this? There are not two Christs. There's not an easygoing Christ for easygoing Christians and a suffering, toiling Christ for the exceptional believer. There's only one. Are we willing to abide in him and so bear fruit? We don't toil and suffer to earn our salvation. But people who are intent and will do anything they can to avoid pain and trouble are following a path that Jesus never walked This letter is written to encourage the church to partner together with Paul in the gospel. And that partnership is built on this relationship that they each have with Jesus. And Jesus is the one who saves, and his cross models for us how to live. If we're gonna share in gospel ministry, we imitate Paul as he imitates Christ. And then if we're gonna do that, then Paul suffered because Christ suffered, so we suffer. And he says, so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Now, some people, that's a kind of a strange verse, is it not? Does he seem to be expressing doubt if somehow maybe I'm going to be there? I, I don't think so. We miss it in English, but we have here in, in uh, Philippians 3.11... A word that occurs only once in the New Testament only once it's the word resurrection and you're going come on well it's it's the word resurrection but on the front of it he's put a participle ek or out of and he says I want to experience the out of resurrection so what does that mean he clearly wants us to understand something, but he adds the word out in front of the noun resurrection. Now, to make a long story short, I think the solution for our theological issues here is found in the book of Hebrews, where we find the phrase by the Hebrew writer, better resurrection. And I think it's very similar to what Paul is talking about here. In, in, Hebrews, in Hebrews 13, actually, in the context of the, of the great faithfulness of Old Testament heroes. I think it's 11. I don't know what my notes say. I know what the, my notes say. Don't look it up because it says those words somewhere. It's either in 11 or 13. Women re- it's 11. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released, so that they might gain what—an even better resurrection, a better resurrection. How do you get a better resurrection? Well, you get it according to the text through suffering. But what does that mean? Well, if you put that with Hebrew, with with Philippians three. Paul wanted us to know what? To know and the participation in his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order to attain this out resurrection, he says, a better resurrection. The resurrection of those in, in Hebrews 11, they were tortured and refused to be released. It, how is their resurrection better? Well, it's better because they got, they got rewards for that. Jesus. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. He suffered, and what happens to him? He gets a really great resurrection because he is exalted above everything that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow. He received more than just a resurrection body. He attained his exaltation because of his humble obedience. And I think Paul, in the same way, he says, I'm going to participate in this greater, this out-resurrection because I have celebrated and partnered with Jesus in his sufferings. It's all about rewards. Paul's attaining of this is parallel to to the exaltation of Jesus. Both are contingent upon suffering, both are contingent upon humility, both are contingent upon obedience. So what are your goals in life? Avoid all suffering, avoid all humility, avoid all obedience, no that I may be found in him, verse nine says. He wants us to live in such a way that when the end comes, we'll be found by God to be in Christ. Verse 10, I want to know Christ, to know Christ above everything else, everyone else, so that when I finally come to the end of my life, I'll have something to show for it after 30 or 40 or 50 or 90 years. I've lived with joy because I know Christ. I I have been found in Him. If He's called me to suffer, that's okay. I can rejoice in that, why? Because I know what's coming at the end and I'll do whatever it takes in this life to get to that place. And so joy isn't found in this world, it's found only in fellowship with God. Biblical joy is not a happy feeling, it's a choice we make because we've built it on our theology. We're going to play in the rubbish heap of life with our hands covered with chicken and and scraps that count as nothing compared to knowing Christ. You see, joy will come in life when we understand that what we're trying to do is to please God and never what we try to do on our own to do that. It's just garbage, my heritage, whatever. But as we come to know Jesus, as we fully believe in his resurrection, then even if we suffer, we can have joy because we know where this is all headed. There's joy in good theology. There's joy in knowing Jesus. There's an ocean of glory in Christ for us to know and to experience. Paul never grew stagnant. He never got bored with knowing Jesus. Instead, he kept wanting to know him better and better and better. And he traded his self-righteousness for the perfect righteousness of God through faith. And he possessed the power of Christ's resurrection. He knew Jesus better by suffering for him. Because Jesus set the example of suffering. And he also anticipated a glorious resurrection because in that resurrection he's going to know Jesus even more. Don't be content to just put your toe in the water of faith. Pursue a deep relationship with Christ. Let us long for the day when we'll see him with his scars who defeated death through his resurrection because nothing on earth, nothing, compares to knowing Jesus Christ as Lord, as Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today. We, 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 <clears throat> we have come to a text that I think is deeper and more profound than I have been able to say today. So I pray that this week you would use this text in our lives, we come back to it. That we would shape our lives and build true joy in our lives through what we believe and where we're headed. And that even if we suffer, we're gonna suffer because of your will and your plan. And we're gonna rejoice that we get a taste of what you went through. So let us keep our eyes firmly on the resurrection and on the hope that we have in your exaltation that we'll join you someday in Jesus' name. Amen.